You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, welcome to this week's BMJ podcast on January the 15th, 2010. My name's David Payne. This week on BMJ.com, we've published research about the link between cardiovascular disease and dementia. Professor Ben Woolazin has been looking at the effect of a group of antihypertension drugs, angiotestin receptor blockers, or ARBs. Elizabeth Loder, one of BMJ's clinical editors, talks to him about his research. It's not a stretch for a physician to look at a patient who has hypertension and is at risk for dementia and to say, well, you know, we should really use drugs that target the angiotensin system for hypertension control. Also this week, for a long time, we've been hearing about what medicine can learn from aviation. And with that in mind, the WHO has created a surgical checklist to promote patient safety. This checklist is now being rolled out across the UK, and we talked to Krishna Murthy from Imperial College Healthcare Trust, who's been trialling it. He tells us about his experience of getting his colleagues to take part. The anaesthetist is largely, as a group of people, were very supportive. The surgeons, many of them were supportive. Some of them were quite sceptical. And finally, Haiti has suffered from the country's worst earthquake in 200 years this week. Services have been devastated, and a state of emergency has been called. We're joined by Marc Dubois, MSF's UK's General Director, who will tell us what's happening on the ground and what you can do to help. Well, it's still obviously a a catastrophic situation and uh, marked, you know, on on the one hand, just massive devastation uh, and uh, the the needs are overwhelming in, you know, all across the board. There's just nothing there in terms of a capacity to respond. But before all that, I'm joined for our weekly news roundup by Annabelle Ferriman, BMJ News Editor. Hello, Annabelle. Hello, David. She's going to talk about some stories that have caught her eye this week. And we've both just come from a quite a, uh, an animated meeting to related to the first story that you're going to talk about. So tell us about that one, Annabelle. Well, this is um, what you might call a tax crackdown by HM Revenue on doctors. They have decided that the professionals in this country have perhaps had a rather easy time of it up till now in terms of paying tax. And so basically... They've decided to tell doctors that they must declare all their earnings other than just their salaried earnings, which are obviously taxed at source. And they're going to have an amnesty till the end of March, whereby if you declare your money, you will have to pay the tax on it, but the fine will only be 10% of the tax owed. However, if you don't uh, declare it all by the end of March, anything that they discover that you've earned uh, that you haven't declared, they're going to possibly prosecute you. They're certainly going to charge you the tax on it. And the fine is going to be 100% of the tax. Basically, they're they're trying to uh, draw in a lot of unpaid tax. And you can't blame them, really, because there's a massive deficit. And um, they've obviously decided this is a rich seam to mine. And are doctors being singled out here? Will they sort of set their sights on other professions? They're the first of the professions to be singled out. I mean, it's the first of a campaign uh, to to draw in lots of professionals. And as I say, those lawyers and accountants and other professionals are going to be next. Yes. Well, that story obviously is in this week's BMJ print issue. A longer version is online at bmj.com. And also, um, I think we'll be following the story up in our BMJ career section in the future. So thank you very much for that, Annabelle. What's next for you today? Well, um, I thought uh, the H1N1 flu pandemic is... is interesting. Uh, but this time it's a slightly different angle. It's, it's on the question of the role of the drug companies in the panic. 
right from the start of the panic, conspiracy theorists like to go around sort of saying, oh, it's obviously the drug companies are behind all this because they stand to gain so much money. And of course, we all laugh and, you know, sort of say what a lot of nonsense. Um, But now a German MP, who's also a member of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, has decided to demand an inquiry into this. Now, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe is not the same as the European Parliament, and it doesn't actually have any statutory powers. Mm. But it's very influential, and if it it decides to hold an inquiry, you know, it can make waves, basically. This man, Wolfgang Wodog, has not minced his words. He's really laid into the drug companies, saying that in order to promote their drugs and vaccines and to boost their profits. They've influenced official agencies to alarm governments. And then these governments have squandered tight resources on these ineffective strategies. I mean, of course, the fact that the the pandemic has turned out to be less severe than feared Mm. has also sort of boosted the sort of general idea that, oh, it was never much to fear in the first place. And if they hadn't done that and the the pandemic had really killed, you know, thousands, just think what would be being said now, you know. Mm. You feel that governments can't win, but anyway... What's going to be looked at really is not so much what governments did as what the drug companies did. Very interesting. Yes. Right. Okay, Annabelle, thank you very much for that. If you want to comment on any or all of those stories, go to bmj.com and uh, click the respond button on those articles. And uh, some of those discussions are also on Dot to Dot, which is our professional uh, community site for doctors worldwide. Now Elizabeth Loder talks to Ben Woolazin about hypertension and dementia. Hello, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Loder, a clinical research editor for the British Medical Journal, and today I'm planning to speak with Dr. Benjamin Wallison about his recently published paper on the use of angiotensin receptor blockers and the risk of dementia in a predominantly male population, a prospective cohort analysis. I wonder if you could start, Professor Wallison, by um, giving us some background on the link between vascular risk factors like hypertension and dementia. Well, that's a good question, Dr. Loder. There's There's a large literature on this where investigators looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, diabetes, have consistently found that those factors are also risk factors for dementia. Uh, Diabetes is a risk factor at at every point in life, no matter how you look at it. Um, For hypertension, one actually has to look at hypertension throughout life. And so it turns out that, that the hypertension you have in the middle of your life and the blood pressure and maintained through your life is really what impacts on dementia. What led you to investigate whether different sorts of blood pressure medicines might be more or less effective in reducing that risk? Although it's clear that hypertension is a risk factor for dementia, the studies that have been done generally show modest effects. And so that kind of led us to think, well, maybe it's not just lowering blood pressure, but maybe it depends on the mechanism that you use to lower blood pressure. One of the kind of systems that stands out is this angiotensin system. Uh, Medications that target the angiotensin system are known to be the most effective medication at lowering blood pressure. And they don't just lower blood pressure What's really striking about these things is they're really kind of controlling vascular health, the health of the cells around the blood vessel and the health of the blood vessel wall. And what really kind of moved us along this way was the observation also that these same receptors exist in the brain. There are two um, angiotensin receptors, two major ones. One of them you can think of as good, 
and one's bad. You know, one raises blood pressure and one lowers blood pressure. And the same thing goes for the brain. One's good and one's bad. But in this case, the bad one, which is the one that raises blood pressure, um, makes neurons kind of a little bit sicker, and the good ones, you know, makes them a little more resilient. Because of that, we, we, that prompted us to, to investigate this question. And the results of your study are consistent with that hypothesis. In other words, both the angiotensin receptor blockers and the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors seem to show benefit over a wide array of other blood pressure-lowering agents, but the angiotensin receptor blockers seem to show somewhat more of a benefit. Is that right? Exactly right. Uh, the angiotensin receptor blockers show more of a benefit, and where we really see the biggest bang for the buck is when we combine the two together where we really see uh, striking reductions in the incidence of dementia and also uh, the kind of progression, if you will call it that, the, um, the admission to nursing homes. So we, and we assume that that's some type of marker for progression. Well, I think that's probably a fair assumption. Now, the population that you studied was um, a particular one. It included mostly men, and it was a U.S. population of older men who I believe had established cardiovascular disease. Um, You did think carefully about some potential sources of confounding, which are always a worry in cohort studies like this. You looked, for example, at possession ratio to try to identify adherence to medication and so forth. Can you discuss in some general terms what the limitations of your study might be and some cautions that readers should bear in mind in interpreting the results? For example, um, you weren't able, I think, to adjust for education or family history of dementia, which could potentially be important. There may be particular biases. You mentioned a couple, education, family history. You know, it's just very difficult to take into account every possible artifact that could impact on the data. The first caution I would give is the caution we should always give when discussing an epidemiological study which is that this is kind of looking at existing data on patients who are taking these medications for a reason. And that's a lot different than uh, saying, oh, I have normal blood pressure and I'm at risk for dementia, so should I take these medications? And we don't really know that answer. That can only be answered with a prospective clinical trial. So any study like this, it's, it's, it's meant to be hypothesis generating. It's meant to stimulate a movement towards actually testing this uh, medication in a very rigorous, controlled, prospective manner. At the present time, based on the results of this study, what would you say the take-home clinical message is for doctors or other listeners out there? You certainly suggested that your findings are not a reason for someone who has no other need for blood pressure medicine to go out and start taking these medications, but might it be a reason uh, in a patient who has no contraindications to these drugs to choose one over another, or do you think it's too soon to say that? Cardiovascular studies support the value of these medications in treating hypertension, and so it's not a stretch for a physician to look at a patient who has hypertension and is at risk for dementia and to say, well, you know, we should really use drugs that target the angiotensin system for hypertension control. That's actually what the Institute of Cardiology recommends already for cardiovascular health. Um, uh, I think there are two things that are novel in this study. 
if you combine angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors, you get a better result than either alone. That's not the current standard for hypertension, but it certainly is something that's considered an acceptable treatment option. And so I would say that's one thing that physicians might consider. The second thing is angiotensin receptor blockers and the ACE inhibitors that penetrate the brain seem to be associated with a stronger uh, reduction of dementia risk than the ones that just act on the vasculature. And so physicians should consider the blood-brain barrier permeability of the medications. And then the third thing is that when we looked at nursing home admissions, we saw an even more striking effect um, associated with use of these medications. And so that suggests that physicians uh, might consider more aggressive antihypertensive treatment uh, for these patients. Although it's important to note that late in the disease, uh, blood pressure often goes down. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It sounds like, based on your familiarity with the literature, you're quite convinced that the future of hypertension management lies not just in controlling blood pressure, but also um, judiciously choosing the medication that's used in order to have an effect on uh, subsequent long-term events like dementia. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. In fact, we're following up this study with another study in which we're looking medication by medication to try to determine how that correlates both with incidence of Alzheimer's disease, nursing home admission, and also looking at particular measures of cognitive decline. So yeah, I agree totally. Well, we'll anxiously await those results. Thanks so much for speaking with us and helping to put your research study into perspective for our clinical listeners. And you can read that paper online for free at bmj.com. Now Helen Morant goes to Imperial College Healthcare Trust St Mary's Hospital to find out about WHO surgical checklists. So we've come to the offices of Mr Krishnamurthy. Thank you very much for having us here. Can you start by explaining a bit about this checklist? When we first thought about a pre-operative checklist was a checklist that was being used in intensive care units in the state of Michigan in the United States. This was led by an intensive care physician called Peter Pronovost, who developed a checklist to reduce the incidence of central line infections, which were found to be a considerable problem. There were a large number of adverse events related to central lines. And by using this checklist, uh, they were able to reduce the incidence of central line infections. Of course, a lot of people would say it was not the checklist. There was a whole quality improvement program but the checklist was a fundamental part of that quality improvement program. So there was some evidence that getting people to, to ensure that they undertake certain steps and processes that are linked to safety is of fundamental importance in ensuring the safety of a patient. Right, okay. So let's talk a bit about your experience in this hospital in implementing it. And I understand you were one of the pilot sites for this checklist. That's right. So, uh, yes, so there was an international pilot study. And for the international pilot study, there was one hospital selected from every WHO health economic area. And our hospital was selected to be the pilot site for the European uh, area. So when we started, we had quite an uh, intense implementation program whereby, you know, Dr. Gawande came down for a couple of days and, uh, and I was in the operating theater for the first two weeks. And we tried to guide people through the use of the checklist uh, because, you know, it's a bit awkward doing something you've never done before. And as expected, uh, 
there was a lot of reluctance to use the checklist for a number of reasons. One of the reasons, obviously, is that it does disturb the workflow in the operating theatre to a certain extent. The second reason, obviously, was a bit to do with professional autonomy as well, because some senior clinicians felt that making them do the checklist was making an assumption that what they're doing is not safe. The anaesthetists largely, as a group of people, were very supportive. The surgeons, many of them were supportive. Some of them were quite skeptical. Uh, but we tried to bring everyone on board and try to engage with everybody. What recommendations would you give from your experience? One of the things that we've also come to appreciate is that some level of training is absolutely essential. Because something like this has never been done before. There are so many people in the operating theatre. And there's a lot of awkwardness when this starts. And there's a lot of embarrassment. For example, introductions. Something as trivial as that has led to arguments in the operating theatre. Because some people don't want to do it because they see it as being slightly embarrassing. Also, who leads the checklist? So when we designed the checklist and developed the checklist in Geneva, uh, we all felt that the nursing profession should lead it because here is an opportunity for them to be empowered. And they're the ones who are in the operating theatre every day. You know, surgical teams are there once a week, but the nurses in the operating theatre are there all the time. So we thought for good reasons that the nurses should lead it. But obviously, just like all human beings, there are some nurses who are outspoken. There are some nurses who are very meek. And I remember there was one particular nurse and I used to tell her that she should lead the checklist, but she was very reluctant to do that because it was not really her personality. There is always a power distance index in healthcare, which is a reflection of hierarchy. And in the operating theater, that power distance index is quite large. So it's, it's a reflection of the culture in the operating theater that generally nurses, medical students, junior nurses don't actually tell a surgeon to stop and do something. So have you found that using the checklist um, breaks down those hierarchies? Absolutely. It has definitely improved teamwork. It has flattened the hierarchy as well, but only when it's used well. Now, finally, I'm joined on the phone by Mott Dubois from MSF UK. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And we're, we're three days on now from the earthquake, aren't we? And obviously the devastation has dominated the, uh, the news here. Could you tell us a little bit what the latest is from the ground there, from, from MSF's point of view? Well, it's still obviously a, a catastrophic situation and uh, marked, you know, it, on the one hand, just a massive devastation. Uh, and uh, the, the needs are overwhelming in, uh, you know, all across the board. There's just nothing there in terms of a capacity to respond. Mm. At the same time, there's quite a bit of chaos. Uh, you know, the communication systems are down. Information isn't able to flow, so it creates a, a, a very, very difficult situation. Um, of course, you know, as you can see in the news items, logistics, uh, you know, aid arrives, even when aid can arrive into the airport, how do you get it from the airport off of planes to the people who need it? Um, and then, uh, you know, it, the looming situation around food and water and sanitation and, of course, shelter. So what are the immediate priorities now then, Mark, with sort of three days on now from the earthquake? I think for the overall aid community, almost everything is a priority. Where MSF is focusing is on treating those where, where we've got medical teams on the ground. We have to treat the people who have wounds and burns and broken bones, and you have to do that right now, right now. These are urgent medical conditions. Of course, food, 
shelter, water, all of those are major concerns. Uh, what, uh, and in particular for MSF, what we need to be able to do is get more teams on the ground and get more equipment on the ground. And that's, that's not been very easy given what happened to the airport and the port and the, the difficult road conditions. Right. Mark, I do understand you had a presence in Haiti before this devastation, didn't you? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things it's important to understand is, that, you know, we're an emergency organization, and we felt that there were certain things about Haiti that were already uh, emergency-level conditions. We've been there since 1991. Mm. Uh, so what, what we had were three fairly major hospital programs there. One was a, a maternity program with a, a lot of um, specialists, uh, uh, and surgical capacity, because there was there were there was almost no one no one in the, in Haiti that would be able to provide, for instance, a cesarean section to uh, to poor people. You always had to pay if you wanted to get something, and quite a bit of money. There was also a trauma center and a major mouth, uh, major health center, and in particular, again, the trauma center is surgery, uh, and the, the maternity had a surgical capacity. Now, that's exactly where Haiti was lacking, and that's exactly what's needed now with all of the injuries due to the earthquake. Right. Um, so uh, we, we were there, uh, and with some very, very big operations, but uh, unfortunately, we are, uh, we, we are just as affected. Uh, all three of those hospital structures were destroyed or rendered unsafe. Uh, we've been able to set up uh, in the parking lot or on the compounds under tents, and we're treating people. We've treated over 1,500 people so far. Mm. Uh, but that's mostly wound stabilization, uh, you know, just addressing the, uh, addressing the basic needs. But we haven't been able to get surgery going again, of course, uh, the requirement there for sterility and things like that. Right. Uh, we hope to have that kind of capacity open very, very soon. Yes. I mean, I know the UNHQ locally went, didn't it, along, and there was, there was obviously sort of people missing there. Were you able to trace all your MSF people quite easily afterwards, or are there still some people that you've not been able to contact? Yeah, it's a fairly terrible situation. We're still, uh, we're, we're still not, we, we still have no sign really from a, from a large number of our staff, in particular Haitian staff. All of our international staff are accounted for. Right. Um, but you know, people, uh, people are you know under buildings, or their family members are under buildings, or their neighbors. Uh, it, it's a, it's an extraordinarily difficult situation. Yes, and obviously disasters such as this often make people want to help. Would you please tell us how we can? Well, uh, if people would like to give, uh, because this is an expensive operation, uh, well, we have a website at MSF. It's www.msf.org.uk. And I think, you know, also, uh, obviously, there's a lot of people who are calling up and volunteering. And for right now, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, we're looking really for, we're taking only our experienced people and French speakers. It's a very chaotic situation on the ground, and it's a very difficult situation for just somebody, you know, good intentions and skills, but they, they, they need to be able to handle the kind of situation we're in. So yes. for right now, we're not taking volunteers, but people are, you know, it'd be great if people wanted to sign up and join MSF and, uh, and be ready for the next uh, emergency like this. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Don't forget that MSF UK is also BMJ's winter charity appeal, so you can also um, donate by going to bmj.com and following the links from there. That's all for this week. Join us next week for all the latest medical news and research. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.